Welcome to the Mini Break, your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Thursday, March 16th. I'm recording today's podcast at the Phoenix Country Club site of the 2023 Phoenix Challenger. This inaugural ATP 175 event falling between Indian Wells and Miami on the calendar offers maybe pound for pound the strongest draws you will see at any challenger event on the calendar. You look at who we have competing, not just in singles, but in doubles as well. Of course, you've got players like Matteo Berrettini, like Emil Rusevori, like a Michael Emer, a Mark andre Hussler, of course. You've got the number one doubles players in the world, Rajiv Ram, Joe Salisbury as your number one seeds here in Phoenix. You've got Mahout and Piers as a team, one of the hottest teams on the challenger tour, now on the ATP tour in uh, Julian Cash and Henry Patton, so many phenomenal players. Our guy, Alexander Kovacevic, veterans like Richard Gasquet, Gael Monfils. I'm not going to list the entire Phoenix field for all of you listeners, but let me just say it is an absolute pleasure for our Crack Rackets team to be here. And I have to give a massive shout out to founder of this event, Johnny Levine, who of course was kind enough to join us on the Cracked Interviews podcast a few weeks ago for inviting our Crack Rackets team here. We've been here for 24 hours. We've already done interviews with Richard Gasquet, with Emilio Nava, with a very engaged Michael Emer. And that conversation I had with Emer is by far my favorite conversation I've done here in 2023. All of you listeners can go find it on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed today. Truly, again, such a pleasure for our team to be here and such a joy to uh, be on the grounds for any event, but particularly this inaugural 175 event, given the caliber of the field we see this week. But again, this Phoenix event is not the headline event on the schedule right now. I know so many of you tennis fans are locked into the action going on on the grounds of Indian Wells. How could you not be? It's our first 1,000-level men's and women's event happening simultaneously of the season. It has delivered the goods really from the start. And as we approach championship weekend, you look at who's still remaining in the singles fields. We have the best players in the world competing for the Indian Wells title over the next few days. And there are so so many different storylines I'd like to explore here on today's show. Now, I won't lie. I got to keep today's show on the shorter end because we do have some work to do here in Phoenix. And by the way, final thought on Phoenix here because there's a lot of rain on the grounds on Wednesday. We only saw four matches, I believe, even get on court. So not going to cover what happened on the court here in Phoenix on today's show. We'll save that for later. But I promise all of you listeners, I will not be leaving Phoenix until there's an interview with Matteo Berrettini on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed for all of you to enjoy. I promise that. That is, again, a blood promise to all of you listeners. Now, he may reject my ask of having him come on the show. And if that happens, perhaps I will be lying to you, but I will make every effort possible. The man with no shame, Dalton Thieneman, who's here by my side, he will make every effort possible to get Matteo Bertini on our Cracked Interviews podcast feed. Again, that's our goal here in Phoenix, if nothing else is to provide that show for all of you listeners. But again, here on today's show, here on this edition of the Mini Break podcast, I do want to focus once more on everything that's happened at Indian Wells, given all of the rain, 
we saw here in Phoenix yesterday. I used that time to catch up on some of the matches I missed, catch up on all of the highlights. And as we approach the second half of the quarterfinals here on Thursday, let me just say again, I don't think we could be in a better spot with any of these draws moving forward. Now, you look on the women's side of things, certainly would have been great if Barbara Krejcikova would have been the number three seed and we could have... I suppose, delayed her seemingly inevitable matchup with Arena Sabalenka until the semifinal round. But, you know, guess what? They ended up playing earlier than the event that than expected. And guess what? This time it was Arena Sabalenka who got the better of Krejcikova. A three-set victory for Sab. She follows that up with a fairly dominant straight-set victory over Coco Goff yesterday. Now, of course, extenuating circumstances for Goff given her match against Rebecca Peterson. You do wonder how much was left in the tank for her yesterday on the other side of things, though. I mean, Arena Sabalenka is just so unequivocally tier one now. And we've been saying that for years here at Cracked Rackets. But if you watched her play at all this past eight days at Indian Wells, I think you all should see that as well. I will explain why I continue to see it here on today's show. And obviously, you look for Arena Sabalenka. Things have been a little bit smoother for her. What's fascinating is how her opponent in the semifinal, Maria Sakari, reached that semifinal. I mean, test after test for last year's Indian Wells finalists. And I know I talked a lot about Sakari earlier in the week, so I'll be much more condensed, much more efficient with my Sakari word choice here today. But I mean, she's just a fighter. And how can you not respect what she has managed to do with her back pressed against the wall in every match that she's played at Indian Wells? Maria Sakari continues to find ways to advance. Obviously, she's defending finals points here this week. By getting to the semifinals, you have salvaged. Salvaged is the wrong word. You have done your job. Now, even if she falls a match point, uh, a match short, again, you look at the live rankings. Maria Sakari is going to hold her ground in the top 10 with this Indian Wells result. And, you know, again, how many three setters it's taken her to get there. So, so impressive. So, obviously, I want to talk about how we got to the semifinals in the bottom half of the women's singles draw. I know I haven't updated you how we got to the quarterfinals on the top half, but, you know, we'll talk on it a little I do think we're going to get Iga Rabakina round two here in 2023. And this is a continued theme that David Kane harped on. And by the way, we'll do this here in the intro. Iga Nation, got to be nicer to David Kane. Uh, Iga Nation's going to defend Iga. And Iga Nation knows my fondness for Iga. Iga Nation's far too kind to me here on the show, far too kind to us at this mini break podcast feed. And I like to think the reason for that is because we acknowledge that Iga Sviantek is unequivocally a generational talent. I joke about it all the time. She's not eliminated from the greatest of all time conversation yet. And with all that said, you all came after David Kane for suggesting that Emma Raducanu might have a shot against Iga Sviantek in their whatever they played round of 16 matchup. Be nice to David. He's trying to have an entertaining conversation. This pod would be no fun if we both just came on here and said, well, maybe it would be fun for Ega Nation if we just came on here and said, yeah, Ega's going to roll everyone. No, David did his job, made the conversation interesting, offered a counterpoint to what will always be my thought on, no, I think Ega's going to dominate you here in this victory. And so, you know, again, this is a little bit of a tangent here to start. You can tell I'm all over the place. That's how enjoyable uh, this has been here at the Phoenix Challenger. My brain is racing to all things tennis, but 
Ega Nation, be nicer to David Kane. He means well. He is absolutely a believer in Ega Sviantek, and how could you not be? She has cruised to the quarterfinals. You look at the draw now again. Very winnable matchup against a Serana Kirstea, who's reached the first, uh, excuse me, the quarterfinals of Indian Wells for the first time. You look at the other matchup. Mukova versus Rabakina actually really makes sense as a quarterfinal, and I'll explain why, but I mean, come on. If our semifinals is Sviantek Rabakina part two, plus Sabalenka versus Sakari. Talk to me how this Indian Wells draw could have broken better. Again, particularly given Krejcikova fell in Sabalenka's quarter. They were always going to match up in the round of 16. You feel like Krejcikova is certainly the best player missing from this stage of the event. That said, boy, are things going to be very fun at Indian Wells. And again, I'll talk about how we got there here on today's show. I don't think this intro is long enough, but obviously I want to talk about the men's singles draw as well. I mean, look, things have held to form. You have all seeds going into the quarterfinals and, you know, with the bottom half of the draw reaching the semifinal stage. All I know is if you listen to this podcast 10 days ago, you'll hear a young man by the name of Alexander Scott Gruskin say, I think Francis Tiafo is going to be the last American male player standing. I think Francis Tiafo is going to get to the semifinals of Indian Wells. And lo and behold, we pulled the rabbit out of the hat. Francis Tiafo is into the semifinals here of Indian Wells. First Masters 1000 level semifinal for Tiafo. Guy's just a monster. I mean, all of the improvements, and we'll get into the tennis abstract numbers, what we've seen from him since the start of the U.S. Open, it's just real. You do it for four months consecutively, it's not a phase, it's not a trend, or it's not a fad. This is a, this is a trend. This is who Francis Tiafo is, and to just hear him speak about maturing as a professional in all the press conferences he's done this week. He did a really fun interview with our dear friend Chris Otto, which you can go read over on the Indian Wells website. I mean, he talked about how he wasn't taking things seriously enough early on in his career. And he's talked about what, the, what minor changes he has made to, again, help himself become more professional, who he surrounded himself with to, again, best position himself for success moving forward. It's music to the ears of any American men's tennis fan. And certainly it's What's, it's, it's not music to the eyes. It's, it's a sight for sore eyes. That's the phrase I was looking for as we're sticking with metaphors to see Tiafo have the success that he's had this week because it just all looks so real. I mean, I know the draw hasn't been the most difficult for Francis, but did all of you watch that matchup against Cam Norrie? Cam Iron Lung Norrie and Francis Tiafo is the more impressive player physically. Now, he's, we've always known he's had the ceiling. I'm really just, I don't know if there's an intro at this point. We've just blended into one stream of thought, stream of consciousness here on today's show. I apologize for the lack of organization, but God, was Francis really good yesterday. And, you know, Francis is going to do his thing. He's obviously got the toughest test in the world right now in Daniil Medvedev. Medvedev, another consecutive victory to get to the semifinals. This time, things a little bit easier for him. He's through in straight sets over Davidovich Fokina. Obviously, I have yet to speak about the Zverev Medvedev round of 16 match that was exactly what you hoped that rivalry would turn into back in 2017, 18, 19, when it was very clear that those two were going to be two of the five next-gen, original next-gen ATP guys that mattered. 
the physicality of it. I mean, again, I, it's, it's the most JV possible version of Djokovic versus Murray back in 2011 through 2016. This modern day, it's the modern day JV version, right? Of what Djokovic and Murray were. That's what Zverev and Medvedev are at their highest aspiration, both from a tennis perspective and I suppose physically as well. I mean, again, sheer delight. And Daniil Medvedev has managed to survive. And that in particular has been so impressive. Obviously, he knocks out a very much informed Davidovich Fokina, who, like, you just have to knock him up the tier rankings of those young next generation of guys moving forward. And I believe Alejandro Davidovich Fokina is a 99. And in fact, he is. So he turns, what, 24 this year? Not quite in the thick of his prime, but certainly on the ascent. I mean, it's the totality of things Davidovich Fokina can do. How do you not throw him right into the Shapovalov tier of players, right? How do you not include him in that conversation of compelling, and this word is always so arbitrary, and I know Mike Cation gets very mad at me. Mike Cation, of course, ATP Challenger commentator, dear friend of the program, the podfather as we call him. He always gets mad at me when I use the T word, talent, because what does talent mean? Talent is arbitrary in the eye of the beholder. All of us watch Alejandro Davidovich Fokina and see what he's capable of athletically, see the aggression he's capable of playing with, all of these different things. You know, again, he was really good this week. And uh, obviously to get to a Masters quarterfinal, like he's just sneaky high in the rankings right now as the 24-year-old Davidovich Fokina on the precipice of making a top 20 debut. And, you know, again, I don't think we're going to have the extended Davidovich Fokina conversation here because I'd like to have that with someone else. But I'm compelled. I'm very compelled athletically by what he's accomplished. And, you know, again, gets to the quarterfinals here, a job well done. But your semifinal, Medvedev, Tiafo. Yes, Medvedev's undefeated against Francis in his career. Excuse me, 4-1 and one overall. I mean, come on. that That's juicy. Obviously, that's where the bottom half of the men's singles uh, draw stands. And then the top half, I mean, I mean, I mean... Come on, <laughs> like Elkaraz versus Felix. Let's keep in mind, uh, you guys know I have Felix as a tier one guy. Uh, we're just all stream of thoughting here. And I'm going to go back to the women's in a second, I, I promise. But I kind of like this idea of stream of thought. Things are coming up, so I'm going to address them here today. I know not my most coherent podcast. I do apologize for that. I will be sure. No, it's very coherent. It's just not organized. I will be sure to be more organized. I will be sure to have another guest for all of you this weekend. There will be some Phoenix-centric mini-break content coming up shortly, but of course, I know how many of you are focused in on Indian Wells here. So again, I'm trying to cover everything I've missed. It's only been like 36 hours or at most 48 hours since we've mini-breaked, and yet so much has happened over the last 48 hours that, again, I feel compelled to uh, discuss all these things with you here today. Yeah, we haven't mini-breaked since the round of 16 started, so yeah, we've had some things happen across the grounds. Anyways... I apologize for the lack of organization here, but still, I mean, this top half of the draw, it's Alex Gruskin's dream, like not to speak of myself in third person, but if I were writing the script, wouldn't, longtime listeners who know me, you know, Alcaraz versus Felix, two tier one guys, you know, again, Felix just got eliminated from the GOAT discussion after last season, leaving without a Grand Slam title, but obviously I still have him as a tier one guy. He's a guy I would be shocked if we see the 2020s end without him having at least one Slam title. He's 3-0 in his career against Alcaraz. He has the serve. He has the forehand. He has the aggressive 
the weapons to just, again, play on his terms, take the ball off of Carlos Alcaraz's racket. And yes, on this slow, high-bouncing, gritty surface, like, I know Carlos Alcaraz didn't win Indian Wells last year, but, like, if I told you Carlos Alcaraz is going to win the next seven Indian Wells titles because Djokovic and Nadal never play it again, whatever it may be, aren't you like, yeah, I'd believe it. I mean, like, I'd believe it. It's a slow, high-bouncing hard court. It's a joke what his forehand can do on this surface. Just, again, his ability to rip through it, the drop shots he plays, the the bounce on his kick serve to set up the plus one whatever he wants to do on the ad side. It's really good freaking tennis from Carlos Alcaraz that he's played so far this uh, week. And obviously, again, he was it was the disappointment that Jack Draper was forced to retire in their round of 16 match. But Alcaraz versus Felix get the popcorn ready. And that might not even be the best match on the top half of the draw. You've got defending Indian Wells champion Taylor Fritz taking on the guy who I'm telling you, like, and this isn't even a hot take, but Yannick Sinner should be in the him conversation. You know, again, the young kids, he's him. We refer to it as Himmy Turner here. Shout out to Nicholas Gruskin for coming up with that. Uh, shout out to Timmy Turner and the Fairly Odd Parents, I suppose, as well. Wanda, Conda, uh, Wanda Cosmo. The entire, you know, Jorgen von Strangle, come on. Now, my roommate in college did a great Jorgen impression, which is why that name has stuck with me after all of these years. And if enough people request on Twitter, I will ask Michael Asparty very kindly to send us a clip of him doing his Jorgen because it's very, very good. Uh, but anyways, I mean, Sinner's him. Like, I'm just telling you, Yannick Sinner is so clearly, when healthy, going to be the tier one guy alongside of Alcaraz, alongside of whoever you want to put in the next-gen cohort. And I don't know if any of those guys are the guys now moving forward. I mean, certainly Medvedev on hard courts has to be in that conversation. But, like, I mean, Sinner's look good. Like, not great. He hasn't played exceptional tennis, and yet one and four overstand in the round of 16, you know, uh, straight set win over an Adrian Manorino, who everything he was touching was turning into gold throughout this Indian Wells run. You know, Sinner's yet to drop a set so far in reaching the quarterfinals here, and it hasn't been the most arduous pathway, but like all Yannick Sinner does nowadays is A, beat players who are ranked lower than him, in particular players ranked outside the top 20, and B, make the quarterfinals or further of every big event that he plays. And I know Sinner is lacking that signature, put it on the refrigerator when you're home in terms of the elite level of elite level ATP player titles. You know, he doesn't have a slam. He doesn't have a Masters, though he did make a Miami final. He does have a 500 level title, although again, it's a sliding scale. It really is. Again, as the standards get raised for each of these players, I get it why people expect tier one results out of a guy like Yannick Sinner. Well. He's got the chance for the signature result, for, uh, taking on Taylor Fritz, second career matchup between the two, Fritz 1-0, and and for Taylor Fritz, after getting tested so uh, significantly against Ben Shelton in round one, a match that David Kane came on the show a couple days ago and said, hey, he should have lost for him to get through in the fashion that he did. Uh, since then, to have not dropped the set, uh, since dropping that first set to Shelton on his way uh, to this quarterfinal, one and two over Baez, four and three over the very fit Marton Fucevic. It's absolutely laughable uh, what Taylor Fritz has done in reaching the quarterfinals. And of course, it's the first time there have been two Americans in the quarterfinals in quite some time, right? First time since it was, I believe, either Andy Roddick and Fish, Fish and Blake, Roddick and Blake, some combination of the three names. It's extraordinarily impressive uh, what 
Taylor Fritz has been able to do in reaching the quarterfinals once again here at Indian Wells. Now, ultimately, again, he's got the test of tests coming up, taking on Yannick Sinner. But I really have been impressed by what I've seen uh, from Taylor Fritz throughout the course of the week. And again, Fritz versus Sinner. Alcaraz versus Felix. I can't imagine things getting better than that in the top half of the men's singles draw. Now, again, it's all been stream of conscious. So right now is where I'll put in the shout out, as always, to our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. But let's go back to the women's here. Again, just a final few more thoughts here, I suppose, before we wrap today's show, because we kind of have covered everything to some extent. But on the women's side of things, I mean, Arena Sabalenka, untouchable on serve. And I think she dropped fewer than 10 points on serve in her victory uh, over Coco Golf, a 6-4-6 love victory where she did not face a single break point. I know David Kane pointed this out, um, pointed this out on Twitter yesterday. A year ago at this time, Sabalenka was thrown in 15 to 20 double faults a match. And that double fault percentage obviously far uh, was, was the highest on the WTA tour, she was over 10%. She was at, uh, excuse me, 10.4% double fault. So one out of every 10 service points ended in a double fault uh, for Sabalenka. You know, again, she had more than 100 more double faults over the 52-week 2022 time frame than any player on the WTA tour. And yet she is just like so significantly leveled the ship since then. The serve has gone just leaps and bounds of improvement. And you look at what she's been able to accomplish. Just, you know, again, the 11.1 ace percentage. That first serve has always projected to be a weapon. She now lands it with such frequency that it has become the weapon you always thought it could be. And again, slice T, slice wide pace into your body. There's not a serve. I mean, does it have the most action, her slice, but her pace on the slice out wide on the deuce side? It's actually something that resonates with me because that ace wide was always my go-to serve on the deuce side. When I was really feeling it, I would call, whether it be a doubles partner. I mean, we might have to bring Max Rothman on the show, who would know. He'd see a look in my eyes, and he would give me the, the pinky finger on his left hand, which means serve wide on the deuce side. And I just, again, like, when you, as a server, if, uh, to me, uh, as a righty, I always think that was the tough. That was my toughest corner to hit is finding that spot. And you know, I was able to find that spot. I was able to hit that ace out wide. I, I, well, I don't know why this turned into me, but like Sabalenka again, I wasn't someone who really cut the serve out wide. It wasn't a massive slice. It was more flat wide, which I think is a little bit harder to land. I think that's the Sabalenka serve as well. She goes flat wide, and it's just overwhelming. And it's. I mean, again, she's 11.1% ace percentage. That's ridiculous. She's holding serve 87.2% of the time. Now, I understand it's fewer than 20 matches overall on the year, but come on now. She's what, like 15-1, and 16-1 and one overall here in 2023? You're holding serve 87% of the time, 16-1, and one, by the way. 87% of the time is a top 10 men's number. Like... You just don't see – I talk about the 80% club on the women's side. I don't think anyone's existed in the 85% or above club. Now, again, it's only 20 – you know, it's only 17 matches. I've never seen it for a 20-match sample size. I certainly have never seen it for a full-year sample size. That's where Arena Sabalenka is at right now with her serve. Oh, and by the way, from a break percentage standpoint, Arena Sabalenka, career high, 39.6% break percentage, which, of course, is a top 10 number on the WTA Tour. And if you actually are watching these matches, whether it was the Krejcikova serve, whether it was the Coco Goff serve, it doesn't matter who it is. 
the match is on Sapolenka's terms. It's on her racket. She's firing both wings so cleanly. There's clearly just a confidence now where she understands, nope, my best is that good, and I just have to play within myself. I have to play my game. I have to dictate on my terms, and I will have the success I need. That's what she did against Krejcikova down the home stretch of set number three. Is you know the 6-3-2-6-6-4 win in the round of 16, even when her second serve was failing her, that sustained aggression and ability to just make the first serve more frequently I mean, she's unequivocally tier one. Like, the biggest hole in her game was that serve, which, despite being the hole that it was, still kept her in the top 10 of the WTA rankings last year. Still, you know, again, when, when you watch it with eyes, you're just like, that, that her serve is such a weapon. Well, now she's putting it in the, in the box more frequently. It's setting up such ease again with the first forehand, the first backhand, whatever it is she needs to accomplish, she's capable of doing it. Yeah, she's the second best player in the world. And I actually think a delta is starting to emerge between her, Sviantek, and everyone else. Like, I think Krejcikova can get there. Again, we're talking tier ones right now. Who are the unequivocal tier one players on the WTA Tour? I think Iga Sviantek has to be number one. I think Sabalenka is an unequivocal two. I don't think there's anyone out there who would argue a counterpoint. You know, what's, what's, the, what's the zag against Sabalenka? That she's still too inconsistent? 16-1 and one this year. You're just wrong if that's your zag. That she's too power-centric and not fluid enough. Do you have eyes? Like, that's just not true either. The backhand's explosive. The forehand's explosive. She's a comfortable volleyer. It's everything we saw on paper all put together on the scoreboard now as well. So, again, Sabalenka, a deserving semifinalist. I think it's going to be, again, I, I'm praying we get the sabalenka Sviantek final we deserve because those are very clearly, eye test-wise, the two best players in the world right now. Although, again, credit to Maria Sakkari. I don't know how she got to this semifinal, you know, but she ultimately does it. Wins over Rodgers, Kalanina, Pliskova, Kvitova, all in three sets. That is not an easy draw. You know, again, three players with weapons in Kvitova, Pliskova, and Rogers. The physicality, the battle that was Kalani. I mean, again, four matches on court. She spent over nine and a half hours on court through four matches. I know she has a day off in between, but it's the physicality. You know, every match has gone over two hours. And there hasn't been a single match yet where you wonder, does Sakari have anything left in the tank? Like, is she going to be able to track down that backhand out of the corner? Is she going to put that high, loopy forehand in play to try and set up that position for her to move around the ball? And now she gets to play the inside-out forehand, inside-out, inside-in pattern, follow it forward to the net that she enjoys employing so thoroughly. Like, again, it, she needed it, too. She said it. This is the best fight of my life. This is, you know, again, I found something mentally this week that has just clicked in a way things haven't clicked before. What's crazy is by making the semifinals after making the finals last year, she still dropped two spots in the rankings from seven to number nine, but she held her ground. That's the key. She really did. And, you know, again, one more victory. She'll jump all the way back up to number seven in the world. Now, she could win the title. She's still not going to catch Coco Goff, who's sitting at six. Um, but again, what's also interesting, you're looking at the points right now, 1,200-point gap between Sabalenka at two, Pagula at three, 700-point gap between Pagula and Garcia, 600, excuse me, 615. All right, we're getting some separation. I like to see it. Again, tiers are forming, folks. The 6,000-point club. It's Sabalenka, Sviantek. Can anyone else catch him? You know, that's the question. Again, Iga, 
Oh my god. I just like I don't know how you beat Ika. Like unless you have an elite weapon that you can play with elite accuracy, with elite consistency, and you have to have a serve that gives her forehands problems from the onset as well. And there's like four players who fit that definition right now on the WTA tour. Again, like Sabalenka, Krechikova, Rabakina when she plays her best. Like all these, by the way, all three of those names have to play their best because, you know, again, the delta between ceiling and floor is narrower for Iga than it is for any other player on the tour as well. Man, she just, uh, Rodkin couldn't hurt her. Like, how do you beat Iga at night on this surface? I don't know how you hit through this surface at all. Uh, how you hit through her, excuse me, on this surface at all in a night match. Yeah, she's looked great. Again, credit to Iga. She's going to have a physical battle in Serana Kirstea, but does Kirstea have a weapon to hurt her? No, not really. Mukova Rabakina is fascinating because you look for Karolina Mukova. I think we can all agree the 26-year-old's back. And look, Mukova is someone who's made a slam semifinal in her career. Mukova is someone who's been ranked as high as number 19 in the world. Obviously, she's dealt with a ton of injuries of late. Back up to number 55 with her run to the quarterfinals here this week. And, you know, again, you look for Mukova 22 and 15 overall in her last 52 weeks. That said, 2023 specifically 11 and 3 overall. Her losses, Collins, Garcia, Masarova 6 and 6 in the first week of the season. She's made quarterfinals Dubai, quarterfinals Auckland, quarterfinals Indian Wells. So quarterfinals in three of her four events. Uh, Excuse me, three of her five events. Yeah, she lost round of 16 to Garcia. Three sets, by the way, in Doha. Seven, six in the third was her loss to Collins at Australia. Six and six was her loss to Masarova. She's back. Well-rounded athlete, can move forward. No clear structural deficiency in her game. Now, is it elite power, like elite of the elite, hit the cover off the ball, Rabakina, Sabalenka stuff? No. And that's why that Rabakina matchup is so fascinating because Elena Rabakina has, again, is one of four players who actually possesses weapons that can hit through this Indian well surface. And, you know, she's yet to drop a set, wins over Kenan, Bedosa. She ends the run of the very much informed Gracheva. Um, yeah, it, it's been really good stuff from Elena Rabakina all tournament long. And so it makes sense that you see Rabakina, Mukova, who are, again, 23 to 26 years old. They're in the prime of their career. They should be competing for Indian Wells quarterfinals. I know Mukova still coming back from injury, so perhaps she hasn't broken into the tennis fans' conscience in terms of, yeah, I, I, I recognize Mukova should be at this stage of event, but when she's healthy, this is who she has been throughout the course of her career. So again, credit to Mukova. She's played some really good ball to get here. Wins over Von Drusova, a win over Trevisan, a win over, uh, excuse me, Victoria Azarenka in round number two, who she beat in round one to just add, put the final bow on what her week has been. Oh, she beats Putin Seva in round number one as well. It's a hell of a week for Karolina Mukova, who, again, into the quarterfinals. Extraordinarily impressive. Your quarterfinal matches here Thursday. Iga versus Kirstea. Mukova versus Rabakina. Iga and Mukova, each with a 1-0 career head-to-head lead. Iga, 90.7% chance of winning, according to Tennis Abstract. You have Rabakina, 69.8% chance. So... That's my final thoughts on all things related to the women's draw as it relates to the men's draw. I think we covered everything. I guess I will do just two more seconds on Francis Tiafo. You look for Francis since the start of the U.S. Open. So that run, of course, where he makes the semifinal, beat Schwartzman, Nadal, Rublev consecutively before getting knocked out by Alcaraz. Since the start 
again, of the US Open last September, you look for uh, Francis Tiafo overall in terms of ATP level action, 28 and 10. He's put together a 28 and 10 five month stretch. I mean, again, you've got what Tommy's winning two thirds of his matches. Francis is at 74% and for what it's worth during this stretch of time, Francis holding at 86.7%, which would be a top 12 number on the ATP two are very much matches what you see with your eyes, right? Since that US Open, his ability to dictate behind his serve. He does it at an elite rate. You can't give him time on his forehand anymore because that ball is so heavy. There's that much action on it. Obviously has always been successful in driving the backhand through the court. Physicality is immense. Creativity remains the same. But he's talked openly about having the opportunity to be exposed to high-level athletes like, uh, like Steph Curry, like the LeBron Jameses of the world who said, hey, man, like, you can't skip the little steps. There's got to be sacrifices every day you make. You got to do the little things well. Francis Tiafo does the little things well. Like, when was the last time Francis Tiafo lost a first-round match at an event? Vienna, three sets, Hubi Hurricots, October. He's eight and one in first-round matches through his last nine. You know, you look for him versus top 20 players during this stretch of time, five and seven overall, but wins over Nadal, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Nori now four and four. And I mean, ugh, did he give Nori the business? He's just like... He's always had that, the, the ability to be there physically. He's always had the creativity, that ability to just straight up find a way to be one shot better than you in every point that he plays. But now all of the pieces has come together and he'll beat you with the forehand straight up in the plus one first strike efficient tennis. He'll outmaneuver you obviously in the short angles and the improvisational skills as well. But it's just again, that hold percentage over these last six months, 86.7%. That's taking care of the little things. That's doing your job exceptionally well. Even his forehand, the break percentage, 22.9%, right around the average of the top 50 men on the ATP Tour. Their average break percentage over the last 52 weeks right now, 22.8%. Guess what, folks? Over his last six months, Francis Tiafo has been a member of the top 25 club. And right now, or excuse me, just missing it at 22.4%. Makes sense. And there's only seven guys you can say that about right now. If I told you aspirationally, Francis is a more athletic, more creative Roberto Bautista Agu moving forward. No, that's not the right comparison. Is it PCB with a little bit more creativity? I don't know. I got to find the best comparison for Francis Tiafo because again, yes, you feel like Elite, elite pace can still give that forehand issues, but man, he just finds so many other ways to make you uncomfortable, and Francis is a gamer. He's always been, roll the balls out, he's going to keep things close. He doesn't just keep things close anymore. He separates himself from the field. So impressed by what Francis has done this week. Uh, again, with this result, he was the 14th seed coming in, first Masters 1000 level semifinal. He's now up to number 14 in the live rankings, which is a new career high uh, for the 25-year-old American. I don't have much more Medvedev. I, I mean, again, I talked about it. This Virev match, the ankle turns, the constant diatribes about why Indian Wells isn't actually a hard court. It's more like it's, you know, a hard court under the, or it's a clay court under the facade of being a hard court. Still winning. 
still, and it was so fascinating. I was talking to Michael Emer yesterday, and Emer was talking about his own physicality and how he looks to a guy like Medvedev. And it was very funny to hear him say, like, well, the difference is Medvedev can win free points with his serve at will as well. So not only does he work you physically, but then he can slap a few aces by you. And isn't that exactly what I've been saying about Medvedev for, like, years now here on this show? Um, and to hear him, I was like, well, maybe if listeners hear him say it that way, they'll believe it now when I say it moving forward as well. Guy's a freak. Again, absolute physical freak. He's just everywhere. And then he's six foot six with a 130 mile per hour serve at will when he needs it as well. So Medvedev did Medvedev things, knocks off the very much inform and explosive Alejandro Davidovich Fokina, who again, I owe all of you listeners a conversation about at some point. I mean, Felix, Tommy, I guess that's the one we'll end on. I didn't talk about that match, and that was really the most significant one from the top half. <sighs> it hurt. I mean, I was watching. 6-5, love, uh, love 40. Tommy's up. He has three match points on the Felix serve. People say the Felix shanked backhand on the 30-40 point. That was the one they thought Tommy was going to win. I thought Tommy was making his on-the-run forehand po- passing shot at 15-40. I thought, you know, Felix did a great job. Great plus-one forehand to the backhand corner. Actually didn't do enough with that forehand volley. Probably could have put it away, but didn't. Tommy had a way better look and way more time on his forehand than I think he anticipated. He sent it long. Obviously had the match point opportunities in the breaker as well. Nothing he could do there. I thought Felix just hit a couple good serves. He was very tentative on the 6-5 match point on his serve. That's the one he's certainly going to regret. That and the forehand pass, in my opinion, are the two he'll want back. But man, that was just top 10 tennis at his finest. Tommy was good. Was it good enough? Have to sustain that at all times. You blink for a moment, the best in the world are going to take advantage of you. That's precisely what Felix was able to do. It's a huge quarterfinal for Felix at a surface you wouldn't anticipate would be great for him. And yet, you know, again, for Felix, now he's up to a new career high, number six in the live rankings. And fascinating match between he and Alcaraz coming up here on Thursday. But just to, I guess this is the final bow. Alcaraz, despite the 0-3 career head-to-head, 53.9% favored against Felix. Sinner, despite the 0-1 career head-to-head, 55.3% favored against Fritz. If it's Sinner-Alcaraz, I mean, it doesn't matter the combination. Push the chips in. This is what you're looking for in the end of the, non-big, uh, the, end of the big three era. If there's not going to be Federer, there's not going to be Djokovic, there's not going to be Nadal in the field, one of these guys is probably going to be doing a lot of winning. Alcaraz, Sinner, Medvedev, Felix, Fritz, uh, Tiafo, your final six remaining players in the Indian Wells men's singles field. That's where things stand as the home stretch of Indian Wells approaches. Now, again, I know this was a disorganized pod. I apologize for that fact. It is because we are here at Phoenix, live at the Phoenix Challenger all week long. If you haven't already, Gasquet, Nava, Emer and more. All these interviews going to be available over on our Cracked Interviews podcast feed. A shout out, as always, to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the f- of an ending job he does day in, day out, making all of our Cracked Rackets content possible. Of course, we've got broadcasts coming up, College Tennis, ESPN Plus, Thursday, Friday, Sundays on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel on Sunday as well. A shout out, as always, to our friends at Tennis Point for their continued support of the show. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 with all all of that said, for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. I'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.